Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is now available for streaming on Spotify. If you like to listen to your podcasts on Spotify, you can listen to this show on Spotify now. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available free of charge, more than 500 episodes and counting. There is also an official Other People app available wherever you get your apps. That, too, is free. It's all free. It's a listener-supported show. So if you like the program and you would like to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one Hey, time. everybody. How's it right. going? Welcome to right. the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I am very pleased to have Sarah Kenzier on the program today. She has a new book out from Flatiron Books. It is called The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. Uh, many of you may know Sarah from Twitter. Like if you follow me on Twitter, then you know who she is because I retweet her, it seems like multiple times a day and have for the past couple of years. Uh, perhaps you know her from watching her on MSNBC as a uh, commentator on AM Joy, perhaps you saw her on uh, like Seth Meyers' uh, late night show just recently. So, uh, you know, she's become one of the most vital voices of the resistance, both in 2016, during the election cycle, and over the course of the Trump presidency. And the view from flyover country is comprised of essays that she wrote in advance of Trump taking the presidency. And what they function as is a diagnosis of how this happened an illustration of what the conditions were like uh, in this country, in places that don't necessarily get a lot of attention. And, uh, you know, she touches on issues that don't necessarily get talked about all that much, certainly not with this much clarity. And when you read the book, I think you start to understand how it happened, how America put itself in a position where the rise of an autocrat became possible. So it makes for bracing reading. And uh, I think pretty much everything she writes has that effect on me anyway. 
Uh, I was joking with her when she was here. I was like, you know, you're the person who tells me what I need to hear, not the person who tells me what I want to hear. And I think there is some emotional tendency in the age of Trump to want to read things that confirm your bias or confirm your hopes. Like Mueller's coming. He's going to, you know, he's going to get rid of him. And uh, I feel like Sarah's always talking me down because I'm susceptible to that. I can, I can fall for that. I can want to believe those things, which I think is natural. But she's got a very sharp, clear eye. And, uh, and her writing is also big-hearted, which I really appreciate. She's uh, empathetic, and she seems, uh, you know, in her work and in her public life, so deeply committed to um, combating injustice and looking out for the little guy. And that really moves me. We need people speaking up on behalf of those who are vulnerable. We need people who have the courage and the moral clarity to uh, fight back and to fight on behalf of those who need it. And she certainly does that. So just a great thrill to get a chance to talk with her and uh, to meet her. And I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sarah Kenzier. And her book, One More Time, is called The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. The work itself is not the hard part. Like I, It's not something I think about. It's like if I feel strongly about something, I'm going to say something. If I feel like if I, I can have an impact, I'm going to go for that. And, you know, writing is what I do, and it's somewhat cathartic, um, you know, to get out, you know, what I'm thinking and feeling about things on in print, to interact with readers and all that sort of stuff. Where it's hard for me, um, you know, is, is as a citizen, worried that I'm going to lose our country, that it's going to become, you know, even more unrecognizable than it already has. And as a parent, um, you know, that's really where it's hardest, is looking at future generations, because, you know, at heart, that's why I do this, you know, not just for my kids, but for all of the, the next generations who have to inherit this tremendous mess that's been created. You know, it's hard enough on people our age, but for them, I mean, they're going to have a very tough run of things uh, if we don't turn things around. And so I feel obligated, you know, to work continuously to do that. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I became aware of you on Twitter, as I think a lot of people listening, like you're one of the stronger and more prominent voices among the resistance, if that's the way you want to put it, on Twitter. And I find myself as an observer and, uh, you know, a retweeter, like whatever you want to call me, somebody who's like incessantly checking and has news lists and like is trying to keep up with this via Twitter um, as like a news aggregator. 
how do you parse the resistance? Because it can feel clickish. I can also sometimes feel, uh, like I'll, I, I will retweet someone and then like two days later, I'll find out like that person, that was a Deza or, you know, it gets disoriented. <laughs> oh God, that. Yeah. Uh, How do you know who's legit? I mean, I think you look for consistency. You look for honesty. You look for compassion. If somebody's making a claim, um, can they back up that claim with factual evidence or are they using slander and libel? I mean, you know, the, the Russian investigation is very serious, as you know, and I've been covering it um, since 2016. Um, I tend to trust more people who were also aware of it and covering it back then, rather than personalities that appeared midway or in the beginning of 2017 with this sudden expertise on Russia. You know, I totally understand that new people are drawn into the topic, and I think that that's good. It's something we need to look out for, you know, as a matter of national security. But there are a lot of weirdos. I, I mean, I don't know how to parse this on Twitter. A lot of people who have a lot of weird uh, conspiracy theories uh, regarding other people on Twitter. And I just kind of drown that out. Like if there's something concrete, uh, then that's one thing. If they're focusing on who is in power, who holds actual leverage in this situation, then I think that's good. I think everyone in power should be taken to task. But, you know, I look for facts. I look for relatability. Um, you know, there are some some purveyors of, you know, uh, bad information. I think sometimes folks just don't don't know they're doing that. And, you know, it's a crazy world out there information wise. So that's somewhat understandable. But then others are deliberately doing it with malice. And I definitely don't have the patience for that. Yeah, I mean, and I think sometimes too, I will find that somebody sort of got it half right. Like some people, mm -hmm. it feels like they are sourced. And, you know, like just to give like a prominent example, Louise Mensch. Right. It's like, you know, sometimes it's like people will be like, she's full of shit. She works for Rupert Murdoch. She's uh, not well. There's all these different theories. But then I was rereading uh, something she wrote about Michael Cohen going to Prague and like the sleuthing with the private jet. And I'm like, feels like sometimes she knows something. So I don't know quite where, like, I don't know how to find footing sometimes. I mean, I would, I would not consider her a legitimate source of information because she has put out so many easily disproven conspiracy theories and lies on top of having things that are accurate. Um, but her sourcing on that is usually stuff that's in the public domain. I mean, what, what's remarkable, I guess, if you want to look at Louise objectively, is that she rightfully said there was Russian interference in the 2016 election before that was a popular claim and took a lot of heat for that, for that very reasonable opinion that I and many other people shared. And in the beginning, because there were so few people who were willing to just come out and say it, I think she drew a lot of attention. But, you know, she's then gone on to label hundreds of people uh, as Russian agents um, to say really bizarre things about, you know, Steve Bannon is getting the death penalty to say that I think my favorite is that Trump has already been impeached um, and that Orrin Hatch is our secret president. Right, you know? right, right. And so that serves a real uh, that, that causes a real problem because what it does is it causes people to doubt the uh, you know legitimacy of claims about what is happening with the Russian interference investigation, which is already bizarre on its own. I mean, it sounds like a spy novel. It sounds absolutely absurd. If you had told me five years ago that you know a reality TV star was actually a Kremlin asset and was going to be brought into the presidency, where you would then rule like a you know combination of an autocrat and a you know game show host from hell, I, I would I would have had my doubts about that. Uh, but you know. I feel like Louise and the people who completely deny that any uh, interference or collusion has occurred are like two sides of the same coin. She takes it too far because she cannot back up her claims 
other people who are in denial take it too far because the evidence is right in front of our eyes. It comes out of Trump's mouth. It comes, you know, from people in his circle. There's multiple indictments. If you're still in denial at this point, something uh, is really wrong with you. So I, I, don't I think get it's sort of the same, the same problem, you know, so, not facing facts. Um, what would you say to Donald Trump if you had the opportunity to talk to him? Good God. I mean, I don't think he can be reasoned with. I think I would just tell him off. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think maybe people closer to him would have some ability to manipulate him into doing the right thing. But what he values are people who are born into wealth. Uh, he values men. You know, like I, I would be like a useless entity uh, in his world. I think that that's actually how he views the the majority of Americans. It's, it's like eugenics. It's yeah, like, you know, it is like eugenics, eugenics mixed with money. Uh, and, you know, we're all just disposable to him. I'm certainly disposable to him. And, you know, I'm keenly aware of that. And so, uh, I hope that those who do have power um, are using it to try to guide him to do the most minimal amount of damage possible. And I wish that those who had even more power, say the power to impeach, the power to indict, uh, would move faster because I think he's causing damage at such an excessive scale that it needs to be stopped. You know, every day that goes by is a day that we lose in terms of our rights, our freedom, our progress. Um, and that concerns me a lot. Well, it's like, you know, yeah, that's a that's a key tension to the experience of this presidency is the lag between there's it's twofold i feel like there's a lag between what i'm learning on twitter you know piecemeal from all these different sources and you sort of it's like a, a tapestry or what you know what i'm saying you're collaging right. it together sort of like carrie matheson on homeland but then what you're seeing in the mainstream media there tends to be kind of a lag right and then there's also the time lag between what you gotta you got a sense that Mueller knows and has a lot he's kind he's got to yes. be ahead of the game and at the same time, you only get one shot at the king. You, you don't want to fuck it up. So my my feeling as a citizen is like, hurry up, Bob. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, time's ticking. The guy's got nuclear weapons. Like, right. Exactly. I mean, I I feel like perhaps you have one shot at the king. I'm not sh so sure that's true. I feel like there's this idea that they need to play by the rules and Trump and the GOP have completely burnt up the rule book and are dancing on its ashes. So I don't understand why they don't just move faster um, for the safety of the country. I'm sure Mueller knows more. I mean, I'm very concerned by the fact that this investigation into Trump allegedly began formally in um, 2011. We knew that before the election, like David Korn wrote about that from Mother Jones and what in an article that, you know, eventually was defined as the Steele dossier article is the first one. And so, you know, as Trump was running, as he was doing things that were setting off alarm bells in my mind, like hiring Manafort, you know, as he was asking the Russians to bring um, him Hillary Clinton's emails and saying that the press would be rewarded, doing these really obvious things. It's like practically a sign saying, like, I am a Russian asset. <laughs> you know, we knew as citizens, we were told that we were wrong. Hillary Clinton pointed out debates. The press made fun of her for doing so. All along, the FBI and the intelligence agencies knew that this guy was like this, you know, super, super close to the presidency. And so I keep thinking, why didn't you make a move? Why didn't you consider this a national security crisis? Like, hold a press conference, like, stop, you know, the process, sit down and explain to the American people what happened. You know, Harry Reid tried to do that. He asked Comey twice in open letters. He said, the public needs to know this information. This is not actually classified. This is stuff everybody's got the right to know. And I completely agree with that. 
that. And, you know, it's, I don't understand why they held back. And if you look at um, Mueller's old speeches, uh, you know, which because I'm a nerd, I go and read Mueller's old speeches. <laughs> this is what Sarah uh, Kenzier does know, in her free time. Ladies they, uh, you know, they're very good. They, they talk about this intersection of criminality, um, you know, basically the mafia, uh, corporations and government. He talks about new alliances being formed between parties that normally you wouldn't think there's an alliance for. It feels like he's really hinting at everything that's going to come. And these these speeches are from like 2011, 2012, basically from right before he left the FBI. So I feel like on one hand, I'm grateful he's there because I think he's much more qualified, has much better judgment than Comey and seems to have a handle on it. But I'm like, you know, he must be aware of the damage that Trump is causing in office, you know, not all of which is reversible. You know, he's packing courts with conservative judges. He's you know doing things on climate change that, you know, it was already a crisis when he came in and now it's much worse and people are getting deported. You know, our lives are being turned upside down. So I think time is of the essence. I don't think that necessarily following the rule book matters because even if he follows it to the letter, Trump and the GOP might just dismiss it anyway. So like make your move, inform the public, make sure they understand like that's what I wish they would do. Yeah, I mean, and like, can the president be indicted? There's all that, like, you know, there's that uh, squabbling I, I read mean, it's online. It's amazing to me that that's a question. I mean, I know it's a legal question and you have to look at precedent and some of it's out of our hands because we weren't anticipating a situation. But, you know, I feel like we're not just looking at money laundering and his, you know, financial crimes in New York. We're looking at treason. We're looking at conspiracy against the United States. When that's a serious question, and, it, you know, it is something I believe he committed, you got to get the guy out, you know, you got to get him out before he, he destroys the rule of law entirely, inserts himself and his family in there permanently. And then we're stuck. I mean, that's why throughout 2016, and especially during the transition period, I was like, come on, like we, we have a one time shot to get this guy out, you know, much more easily. If he gets in, he's going to become entrenched and it's going to be hard as hell. And that is exactly what happened. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember you're like the time to do time to act is now yes. before he gets in. And people needed information. And that's why I'm really disappointed in our press, because that information, so much of it was in the public domain. Like today, I was on a panel um, with David K. Johnson, who's been, you know, covering Trump since the 1980s. Wayne Barra is a friend of his, you know, he died the night before Trump was inaugurated. But that's another, the, the New York, uh, he's the Village Voice guy, yeah. um, you know, another one who covered Trump since the 80s. And they knew about his finances, his crime links, his links to the Italian mafia, his links to the Russian mafia, his bankruptcies, you know, his bigotry all these things and they had a terrible time getting you know the rest of the press to pay attention to the stories like those two guys with their long you know decades of knowledge about them should have been on like every newscast every night just being like this is what trump is about because you know out where i live especially um among younger people like basically anybody under 40 they knew him as the guy from the apprentice and they knew him as a sort of successful tycoon type brand that he had successfully built or other people had built for him. They thought that that was really who he was. They didn't know about all this stuff from the 80s and 90s. I knew just because, you know, I'm, I'm just old enough to remember. Like, I remember being a child and Donald Trump being synonymous with um, kind of ostentatious failure, with going bankrupt <laughs> over and over, with being a walking disaster, with having all these divorces, with being, a you know, a total, you know, asshole with no self-awareness. And then when he was on TV, um, you know, I remember my 
my mom calling me. I was living abroad at the time. I was in Turkey, and they're like, you know, Donald Trump of all people has this TV show where he pretends he's a real businessman. And you know, that was like how he, you know she presented it to me. And I started laughing, and I kind of thought, yeah, you know, he's terrible. He's a terrible person, but you know, that seems harmless enough. It's just a show, whatever. And you know, we didn't know that that was the beginning of the repackaging that a lot of people took very seriously and looked to him as a kind of a folk hero. That's the opposite of what he is. He's like a folk villain. Like, well, that's the thing. I think like you know, you talk about his uh, ability. Like he, uh, I was just talking to Steve Almond, who has written a book about Trump, and he's like saying, "Oh like, yeah, he was on my panel today." Was too. he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's you like, watch he's, this panel. he's got like the uh, ultimate uh, safe space, right? Like he can get away with anything. Absolutely, it's incredible. And I think part of the reason why is because he sort of set our expectations over all these years and on reality TV, and so people it normalized him. Mm-hmm. And then he also got ratings and was a cash cow for Jeff Zucker and. And people didn't speak out as forcefully against what he was doing. I mean, when he launched his campaign saying that Mexicans were rapists and murderers, like, you know, I I was speaking out against it and then also hoping that he didn't, you know, piggyback on the bad publicity to just generate publicity and keep himself in the headlines constantly, which is, of course, what he did. You know, there were some repercussions for that. He lost The Apprentice because of that comment. And that just shows how far away we've moved from that time where that would cost him a TV show in 2015. Now that's nothing. He said things that are even worse than that. He says them basically every day, he tweets them out. He, you know, destroys international relations sometimes while doing so. And he's given a pass. Um, you know, I just saw the new cover of The Atlantic and it's something like, you know, the presidency is too hard for anyone. And I'm like, excuse me, like, you know, you have to have standards. You have to have expectations. You've got to stop infantilizing this monster because, you know, sure, in terms of geopolitical strategy, he's, you know, ignorant and he's ignorant on purpose because he only cares about himself. He cares about enriching himself and he cares about staying out of jail so that he could just hoard this money, feel famous, feel powerful. But there's not an excuse in being the worst president in American history. Like, I'm sorry, you have to be accountable for that. And he's had every advantage in life. He didn't have to work his way up. You know, all he did is, is like, I'm thinking of this profane th- expression, is screw up. Um, <laughs> you know, like from the get-go, he was given all this money, he blew it, he lost it, he had to have the mafia, you know, bail him out. I mean, he's like just this walking disaster and you don't give a guy like that a pass. I, I don't know why they are. I mean, it's they're intimidated by him. A lot of the press is, is very uh, timid in the way that they, they regard him and treat him. And I've never quite understood it because he's he's just a you know a monstrous human being and he does re- wield real power and that power hurts real people and so of course he needs to be called out so uh flyover country uh i'm from it like i was raised in wisconsin and indiana are you have you li- lifelong st louis? no no i've moved to st louis 12 years ago before that i actually lived in indiana um but i grew up in meriden connecticut which is a sort of post-industrial town uh between hartford and new haven it's like a lot of it reminds me of st louis because it's one of these places whose glory days were way before i was born and by the time i was born there was like no downtown um you know a lot of you know gangs and crime and all this kind of stuff and you know so that was my my reality. And I, you know, I liked my town. I liked my scuzzy town where I would, you know, walk to go to McDonald's and I'd pass the gun store and the t- tattoo parlor and the porn store, you yeah. know, but it's like, cause it's still, it's still my home. And so, you know, St. Louis is kind of like a, a very large version of that only with actual cultural activities, which is something I lacked uh, as a child. And, you know, uh, yeah, so I'm used to places like that. I'm comfortable in, in like the strip mall and the fast food restaurant. That's well, and where I feel St. Louis, you know, but like St. Louis is, uh, and you mentioned this in your book, 
Like, because Indianapolis, I don't know if it had, it didn't have the heyday that St. Louis had. St. Right. Louis had a, re- St. Oh, Louis St. had Louis a real was heyday. The place everyone wanted to be. Like, yeah. if you know, if you were around in the mid nineteenth century and you went after for a long time, it used to be the fourth most populous city in the country when you know river trade was a big thing. It's halfway down the Mississippi River. It's halfway across the country by rail. I mean, it was just you know, you see remnants of it everywhere. You see all these beautiful neighborhoods and beautiful buildings, some of which have decayed, you know, to an incredible degree where people are just stealing bricks, but others are intact. And we do have all these civic institutions that are left over from that, basically left over from when we had the World's Fair, which, you know, can you imagine the World's Fair in St. Louis? Um, You know, we have a free art museum, science center, zoo, all these kind of attractions. So it's in many ways, it's a very nice place to live, but it's definitely a place, it's like a fallen imperial capital. And, you know, I lived in uh, Istanbul for a year. I lived in Vienna for about five months. And I felt that way then too, you know, like the former Ottoman capital, former Habsburg capital. Like This is like the fallen imperial capital of, of the United States. And I don't think many people sort of see St. Louis this way. They just see it as like this kind of irrelevant place that you, you know, you fly over. But to me, it's it's been fascinating, um, you know, and it's also like dear to my heart because it's where I'm raising my children. It's where I live, sure. um, you know, so it means a lot to me. Well, and it's also, you know, you say it's not the way that people see St. Louis, but I think it's a lot, not the way a lot of Americans see America. Oh yeah. Like the lens through which you, uh, were viewing things is you're viewing it. You're seeing this all around you. It's your everyday, right? You're seeing the evidence of the fallen Imperial right. capital or whatever. And I think, uh, Americans on the coasts or in other cities that didn't necessarily have the, the highest heights, the way St. Louis did mid 19th century, early right. 20th century, you know, it might not be as, uh, evident to them how, much things can change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I notice that every time I come well, somewhere like LA or New York, um, just the absence of empty space, because that's just a defining feature of St. Louis. Like you, you can drive down a street where, you know, there are buildings that are like a hundred years old and were once, you know, these beautiful places that are just basically rubble. And if I'm there with someone from out of town, they're like, what happened? You know, was there a riot? Was there a tornado? And I'm like, nothing happened. Apathy happened. White flight happened. People left and nobody rebuilt. And then, you know, now we have that with, that's with the city. Now we have suburban poverty. We have malls that are just these dead malls with like, you know, grass growing up in the parking lot. We have, you know, fast food restaurants that couldn't stand the test of time. We have homes that were never re-inhabited after the um, financial crisis, after people lost them. You know, it's it's a depopulated place. And there are other cities like that. Like I get mail from people from Cleveland or from Detroit, and they really relate uh, to my description of St. Louis because those cities had their heyday and those cities have fallen very hard. And they also have... Um, um, the same racial dynamic in in many respects. And so, you know, but um, because wealth has, like places like LA and New York have gotten so prosperous, but also so expensive, I think that it really skews who's living there. It skews people's perception of like what's average or typical. And by that, by typical, I don't mean real or fake. And I don't mean better or worse. I just mean typical. And I think that St. Louis, most, more cities are like St. Louis than like Manhattan or something. Like Manhattan's just an exception in every way. Well, in San Francisco, especially when there's like a very concentrated, um, Geography. There's right. only so much land. Like there's Manhattan. It's an island. Right. Exactly. San Francisco's teeny. You know, really not that big. And right. so real estate becomes premium. Los Angeles. There's enough sprawl right. to accommodate. You know, still, but it's it's still out of control. There was right. just there was just a whole like Twitter moment about the LA real estate market. And, right. 
and the homelessness problem is terrible and, I, uh, and has I gotten noticed. a lot worse since I've, I mean, I've been here like what, 17 years, 18 right. years. You know, St. Louis is as bad too, because they keep closing our shelters. And, you know, we of course have all this empty space. So I'm always saying, you know, convert these places into homeless centers. You solve two problems at once. Like this is pretty obvious, but you know, there's like, a lot of do cruelty. Do them all. Like, we'll use them all. <laughs> yes, honestly. You know, and I think uh, some citizens would be up in arms at that proposal. They, they would think that, you know, people don't deserve the, you know, a free place to stay. They don't have empathy for, for homeless people that have found themselves in that position, even though, you know, I remember I did a story on the homeless shelter in St. Louis and interviewed the people there because they were people who just were leading ordinary suburban lives and then lost their job, had an accident, couldn't pay the medical bills, lost their money, end up in the homeless shelter, never thought they'd be there. And so it's very frustrating. It's like yet another problem kind of left over um, from the pre-Trump era that we don't th talk about as much now because we're talking about nukes and Nazis and Russia and all this more dramatic stuff that Trump has brought with him. But those old systemic problems remain. How did like how would you define your beat? Like I, oh I, I could I could define it. It's like uh, authoritarianism, poverty, class, race. Am I missing something? Um, no, I mean, that's, that's pretty accurate. If you want to sort of the highlights of that, it's like corruption and injustice, basically, you know, whether in America or in other countries, whether in middle America or Central Asia, I mean, a lot of the same themes are there. And, you know, that's the kind of defining factor. That's the thing that came up, you know, when I put this, these essays together, there was no uh, real coherent quality apparent to me at first because I do cover so many different things until I kind of looked at as that as corruption and injustice and a desire for change and to try to see yourselves in, you know, the shoes of people less fortunate than you, people marginalized, people vulnerable. Like that's something I try to, you know, instill when I write so that people have, you know, a more uh, empathetic view towards their fellow countrymen. I think that's what, I think that's a lot of what people respond to in your work and what distinguishes it is that somebody who does like real rigorous academic stuff can sometimes I think get bogged down in the weeds of research right. and facts and statistics. And like all of a sudden you lose some of the, the, uh, the heart right. of the matter, but your stuff doesn't, and it connects on a personal level. And I think, you know, it's, I would challenge just about anybody, uh, to read your book and not recognize something of themselves in it. Like, right. you know, it really drills down into, uh, so many different dynamics at work in the American experience. And, uh, I guess like, like what I want to know as a, you know, a Twitter fan or a fan of your book, somebody who's kind of been with you for the past, you know, couple of years is like, how did you get interested in this? Like, where do you come from? Like, how did you, how did you wind up becoming so, um, determined to address injustice and to do this work and to, and to learn about authoritarianism and how yeah, this happened. I was happen always interested in that. I mean, it sounds weird, but, um, you know, as a kid, I was interested in history as also like a fan of sort of dystopian fiction. You know, I loved the book, A Wrinkle in Time. I was, I was frightened by conformity and I was frightened most, I think when I would read about an atrocity like Nazi Germany, not so much by Hitler, but by the people who just stood back and they just let that happen. And they let that happen to their neighbors and they let that happen to the community. That question haunted me. It haunted me as a little kid. I remember always asking my mom and she was like, I Are don't you Jewish? know. Huh? Um, my, my part of my family is my dad's family is not my mother's family. Part of it is. So, you know, some of that for my mother is personal, um, you know, but my father's Polish. So there's, it's a really weird, and, and their family's Catholic. It's a real mix. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 
I was upset, you know, and I studied the history of that. I became interested in Eastern European history, you know, which is full of atrocities. And Why? again, just because it's full of atrocities. Um, no, just, uh, I mean, it just was more, I mean, part of it was my heritage. Cause like my Polish heritage was more emphasized growing up. Um, and part of it was, you know, I was interested in the Soviet union. I was, you know, interested in kind of, um, totalitarian regimes and you know no, normal stuff for you know a girl from was, <laughs> this is more when I was in high school and college it grew into that when I was younger it was more like how do people do terrible things and just get away with it and I was interested in that in America too like one of the you know earliest experiences I remember is watching you know the Rodney King tape and then hearing the verdict and I was you know 11 or 12 and I was like how like how there's a tape like how can this be happening it was another time I was like asking my mom and she was, you know, she was all so she was somewhat shocked. And of course, we were shocked because we were white. You know, we are white. And, I, you know, black friends of mine that had that completely expected the cops to be let off the hook. But I didn't know that as like a middle schooler, you know, of course. <laughs> like as, as a white middle school kid. Um, and so, you know, all of that to me is connected, like atrocity in America, um, you know, which a lot of times we have a tendency to just glide over when it comes to matters of race. You know, we don't have monuments about slavery. We have monuments of the Confederates. Like we don't have a kind of forthright examination of what, you know, Jim Crow was of internment camps. We don't confront, you know, the worst things in our own history. And that makes people think that it can't happen here, that we can't move in an autocratic direction because they ignore the times in the past that we have because those times affected people primarily who are not white and so that history gets swept under the radar and you know i don't think that i don't believe in american exceptionalism i think we're just as vulnerable to these autocratic tendencies as everyone else we have been throughout our history what makes us different is you know our constitution our laws our freedom of speech we have had that very long tradition um you know which was not equally you know applied and available for everybody but you know was at least there in principle um which many countries don't you know like i studied uzbekistan for very long time. Uzbekistan has never had that in its history. Um, so we're coming from a different place, but I think that we are vulnerable. And the less honest we are about our flaws and our vulnerability, the more likely they are to get uh, exploited. We need, it like feels so. like we need therapy, like as a country. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, basically we do. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. People keep saying, like, what are we going to do when it's over? And I don't quite know if it ever will be like i feel like we're in a not not i'm saying like we're going to keep going down the road towards authoritarianism and become fully authoritarian i don't necessarily think that's going to happen but it's you know we have changed as a country and if we work our way we're not going to work our way back we could work our way maybe to something new you know we'd be a new kind of america which is also true after the civil rights movement it was true after world war ii you know we've gone through these um big you know seismic shifts before it's just this one is like it is particularly dangerous because it feels so out of control. Because um, in the past, you didn't have, I don't know, like the tyranny of a of a criminal mobbed up president and the complicity of a political an entire political party and letting him and you know, a media apparatus and a media and you know if the media it's not everybody at least with the GOP it basically is I mean they're they're gutless when they're not just fully in on it and at this point you know unless you're you're really voting against it unless you're actively fighting it like you're a useless person um, in the GOP and it, it's extremely frustrating to watch that well yeah like the Jeff 
Netflake like phenomenon. Yes. Oh my god! Where you like make a like make a statement that gives me hope, but it's like, but dude, you're voting. Yeah, the, you know, I don't care what they say at this point because I also don't think they're reaching the Trump voters who maybe they think they are. Like I feel like they're they're reaching the liberal media who then puts them on TV a lot and feels like, oh, there's still some good Republicans. We're going to be okay. And I'm like, the good Republicans aren't voting the way that they speak, and that matters. I mean, the most disappointing people to me. I mean, it's hard to have just be disappointed about John McCain because he consistently lets you down. <laughs> but like, you know, John McCain and, and Lindsey Graham came out swinging, you know, once Trump was nominated, once he won, they were the first people to initiate the investigation into Russia, um, even, you know, I guess Harry Reid, but then them. And then they go and they vote in, you know, Tillerson, Pompeo, all these corrupt people. Um, and what do they, they have on Lindsey? I, I've heard rumors about what they have. I, I don't think that... It's relevant. I feel like people's personal lives are not our business. Um, but I do think the fact that Trump does seem to be threatening or blackmailing him or possibly threatening and blackmailing somebody that he loves is important because that's how Trump operates. And I began talking about this a lot, you know, last year and people, you know, I got a lot of flack. I remember Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, you know, saying I was like absolutely crazy for saying that Trump and his people, you know, threaten uh, others, threaten Americans. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's like Trump's whole MO. Like ever since Roy Cole you know, with Michael Cohen, with his other lawyers. And now, of course, everyone knows this because of Stormy Daniels. You know, she really helped bring attention to the way that they operate, which is not just bullying. It's like threats of physical violence. That's the person we have in the White House. And that's very frightening. It's, you can't, I mean, and I just like sometimes I shake my head and I, you almost have to laugh. You're like, I can't believe that, like the sanest person in the room is a porn star. Right. She's going to bring him down. You know, like she, oh, I like her. I know. I, I think I, she, and I like her lawyer. I, like <laughs> last night. Yeah. Michael Avenatti is like, I'm just like this guy. He's from St. Louis too. Is he? <laughs> yeah. He's a, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, who's his personal trainer? And like, he's got like the, like he's tireless. He's great. And you know what? He understands Trump. He understands, I think, how to get to him so much. He can speak his language. He's like a legit tough guy, but with moral principle. That's the kind of person who can actually like get under Trump's skin a little bit. Trump goes on about, you know, CNN or Maggie Hammer. Those people don't actually threaten him. They often placate him. But, you know, Michael Avenatti, that, that's something else. Stormy Daniels is another one. You know, he wants to think women are deferential to him. Women bow down to him. And then she's standing up to him and he doesn't know what to do. Well, no, and, you, and I think you tweeted something about this just today that I retweeted where you said... Like the, the biggest tell for Trump when somebody's getting under his skin or when he's actually afraid or when somebody's being really effective in opposition to him is that he doesn't talk about them. Oh, yeah, that's, but, that's generally true. I mean, there's some people, you know, he'll talk about Mueller um, broadly. He'll talk about, you know, because that is a threat and he does want to try to dissuade people from taking that seriously. But, yeah, you know, his fiercest, most effective critics, you know, he, he's not going to he doesn't want to bring attention right. to people who are providing vital information. And most mostly he doesn't bring attention to people who are talking about organized crime, about, um, you know, his history of uh, basically being exploited you know, uh, to, to other parties, you know, initially with Russia, um, but now everyone's talking about Russia. So it's sort of pick and choose. But yeah, he does a lot of fake feuds, uh, fake feuds and, and ways of bullying and humiliating people, uh, humiliating people on Twitter. That's that's what he does as it. a smokescreen. And that's his M.O. Yeah. I mean, he, like the thing about it that gets so frustrating is that it's the same shit over and over again. Oh, yeah. And he just does. His, and, and the people don't catch on. And it's like, guys, he's just, you know, he's she's trying to get you to look at the shiny object. While right. Well, he's also what he's doing, like today, you know, if I'm going to be so blunt with Maggie Haberman, 
mean, she's the most ass-kissing Trump journalist. She basically writes out, you know, propaganda-style narratives of palace intrigue, you know, like a little court stenographer. It's the kind of thing I saw, you know, when I was studying the former Soviet Union. And it's, you know, where you, you portray, uh, you know, the president and others as in some sort of rivalry, and there's lots of gossip and lots of salacious content. And that makes it seem like power is not being consolidated. It makes it seem like they are too incompetent to be an organized force. And Michael Wolff's book uh, did that as well. And I think that Trump would prefer for people to think that he's incapable of committing the kind of crimes and the kind of, you know, engaging the type of behavior that he has, because then that lets him off the hook a little. The Atlantic cover that I mentioned before is, again, putting forth that narrative. That to me is, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily like an organized propaganda narrative, but there have been times where I wonder if Trump's team kind of sends out talking points that the press might find irresistible. Like they love this idea that like the White House is a giant mess and there are these clashing personalities and it's so dramatic because they know people will read about that. So it's not even like a nefarious thing. Like I'm not saying they work for the Russians or something like that. I'm just saying they are not kind of um, self-aware enough to realize their own role in propagating a myth that they might think is insulting to Trump, but is actually beneficial to him and kind of hides um, the greater crimes and and, uh, acts of corruption that are being committed every day. What is your sense of... Because I think it's pretty pretty clear to anybody with like half a brain who's paying attention that he's a Russian asset. Yeah, but he's they, a, not an agent, but an asset. That's that's my belief too. Okay, so that means that they have pretty major leverage on him. I would suspect financially and otherwise, maybe the P tape or whatever it is, but. He's, yeah. he's kind of doing what they say. Oh, I think that they've, you know, I wrote an article tracing his 30-year relationship with, you know, back then it was the Soviets. He went in 1987 on July 4th, which I don't know if that was symbolism they were looking for. <laughs> they put him in the Lenin suite. They gave him the tour. And, you know, they, this is just what they do to anybody who's, you know, not even powerful, just to anybody, but especially to powerful Americans is, of course, they start, you know, a file on you. Of course, they spy on you. Of course, they track you. Like, that's their job. It's the KGB. You know, so you should expect that that happens to you when you go to the Soviet Union. And then later on, Russia carried out those same practices just, you know, under the FSB and under, you know, different groups and stuff. And so I think they have leverage on him. But the other thing is, I think he's very much a willing participant. I think he has debt, you know, that in a sense can be leverage for them. And Russian oligarchs have been bailing him out for a very long time. And I think that they have a mutually beneficial kleptocratic relationship. And that relationship incorporates members of the GOP. It helps finance the GOP it incorporates people like Tillerson, you know, and Exxon. And, you know, there's a reason he got the Order of Friendship Medal from Putin. And a lot of that kind of thing, um, when you get into policy, just comes down to sanctions. You know, I've always felt sanctions were at the heart of why, you know, they really backed Trump hard right now because they were upset. Russia was upset about the sanctions that were passed. The sanctions work. They yeah, hurt. They work. They hurt. They can get even worse over time and they needed them to be repealed. Um, and I think they had interest in Trump for a long time. Trump has an interest in the presidency for a very long time. People tend to portray him as this political neophyte who just decided to run. But, you know, he came close to running or ran, you know, four times before 2000. And we've had more elections like since Trump appeared on the scene where Trump was running or almost running than when he wasn't. And so, you know, this is a guy who has always wanted this. Russia knows he has always wanted this because Trump would tell you or he would run. So it's not like it was a secret. And of course, they're going to explain 
despite that. But I think they really honed it and finessed it um, basically in Obama's second term. I think they were very angry at Hillary Clinton uh, as Secretary of State, you know, because she was encouraging Russian protests. She was harshly criticizing Putin. She was helping, um, you know, implement sanctions. And I think Putin saw her as a grave threat if she were to be elected. So there's sort of two things like, People are like, oh, Putin just wanted to cause chaos. I'm like, that's not it. It's a very concrete choice. Like on one hand, you have Hillary Clinton, who's going to impose sanctions, who's going to back the EU and NATO, who's going to be a hardliner, who's going to call out Russian human rights or Kremlin human rights abuses. And then on the other hand, you have like an orange puppet who owes you a lot of money, who will basically do your bidding. Like, of course you choose Trump. Like He's the perfect mark. Why wouldn't they? It's He's so the- weird to me that people think like, oh, they were weighing the options. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, and- like you, you, I mean, it's all hindsight's twenty twenty. But man, a guy like Trump, who is so starved for ego gratification, who is such a bumbling financial wreck, mm-hmm. um, and is desperate for somebody to lend him money, desperate for any kind of like outward uh, display of success in real estate and business. Like the Russians must have just been like, it's like fish in a barrel. Is that the term? Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, he's the perfect mark. Right. No, he's basically like an ideal of like what they would look for in an asset. You know, like, um, I forget, you know, they have like the the MICE abbreviation where it's like money. You know, I can't remember his ego, you know, but yeah, like basically what you're just describing. I mean, he's ideal. And I think they realized that, um, you know, very early on and kind of kept him, you know, in the back of their mind. Um, I don't know whether they really envisioned this uh, working. One thing I've always thought about is that if he had lost, I think they would have kept pushing until he won or just Hillary was out. I think that we would be in impeachment hearings for Hillary right now if she had won. And so in a way, it's like there's an equally frightening alternative reality of Hillary winning, which I think would have involved maybe more civil violence. You know, you're already seeing acts of that in the fall, threats of that. You know, Roger Stone said there would be a bloodbath if Trump didn't win. I think they would have never let her stay as president if she won. And we would just have a whole new set of problems, but related to this general uh, corruption in the GOP. And then what about like, do you have any sense of how Russia is communicating? Because like, like, is, is Trump taking orders? Is there a back? Ch- there's got to be a back channel. I, oh, yeah. I mean, we know that there's multiple back channels. There's also just like front channels. Like he goes, he calls Putin, he meets with Putin illicitly at the G20. Right. Everybody kind of sees that happen. He has, you know, Lavrov over in the office where they, you know, he give, he gave them state secrets, you know, which were uh, very damaging. Um, oh, the for Israeli. His- yes. I mean, yeah. that to me, when I heard about that, I was like, OK, maybe someone will finally do something because that's like a really big deal. And then, of course, they laugh about firing Comey. Um, yeah, I do think they're giving him orders. You know, you see that with the sanctions. You see that when, you know, Congress or the Senate tries to pass the sanctions. Nikki Haley tries to uphold the sanctions. And then suddenly Trump is there like, no, 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 we're not really going to do it. And everyone got so excited with the last round of sanctions. And I was like, there's a difference between impose and enforce. And there's no way in hell Trump is going to, to allow this because he's in hock to them. You know, he is in that sense controlled by them. I don't think that they choreograph everything he does. I think they only care about the stuff that directly pertains to Russia, or if there's some, you know, international issue they'd like to manipulate, you know, maybe sometimes Syria, maybe North Korea, I think they kind of, you know, will work him and manipulate him on that as well. But, you know, Trump being like a moron or a bigot or incompetent is is coming from Trump. You don't need Russian assistance for that. (laughs) He can do that all by himself. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I'm sure they, they love that. You know, I think his unpredictability might... 
uh, make them a little bit nervous because he can, you know, assuming that he's ever unpredictable for them. But that's something that's very interesting to them is like he is very consistent. He's consistently deferential and they, he has no other relationship like that in his life um, that he does with Putin and with various, you know, oligarchs and heads of state in Russia. He is consistent for decades. And that in itself, you know, is an alarm bell. You know? I wonder how they, like, how do they, like, if, you know, I know they have the money thing. He owes them money. But if there is damaging video, like, I think they, there probably is. So they just what they just like at some point meet with them and just pull out like a still image and just go. Yeah, I don't know how. I mean, it has to be really bad. I think it has to be much worse than this P tape because the thing is, is, Trump doesn't feel shame. Right. Trump just has fear of of legal consequences. He worries about losing his money, losing his brand, and going to jail. I mean, that's basically it. But if Trump, you know, like when the Stormy Daniels thing first hit, I almost suspected Trump of putting it out there because I thought he'd want to be thought of as the guy who you know gets a porn star to sleep with him voluntarily, like you know, because all you know, he's mostly known for sex assault or for marrying uh, basically trophy wives. You know, and it, another thing that's interesting about him in the presidency, like Marla Maples was selected to win the Southern vote. Like Wayne's, Wayne Barrett's old reporting described that. He had oh, really? This, yes. I, I, I didn't know this until I was rereading his old work, but, you know, he was thinking about the presidency, thought Ivana uh, would be a problem because of her accent and just, you know, being too, too foreign, too exotic. And they thought, oh, Marla, that's good. She'll get this. I mean, everything is sort of calculated in this weird political way. Um, and he doesn't seem to have had real relationships, real girlfriends. He either has women he marries or women he sexually assaults. And so Stormy, Stormy Daniels kind of offset that. Like, you know, they had a, a night together and it's like, okay, that's almost more normal than any other relationship Trump It was like had. missionary, you know? But like then, she... <laughs> you know, of course, there are a whole bunch of horrifying details of that, of her being threatened, of the NDA she had to sign, of all the pressure, you know, and, and it becomes yet another chapter of this horrible study of, of corruption that is Trump. Well, and you know, you you were just touching upon it, and I'm now recalling something you have either written or tweeted, where you're saying, uh, in describing Trump, that he is a student of power, uh, and I think that that's something that people kind of gloss over or don't take seriously. It's just like like or that he like you said earlier, he's new to this pursuit of the presidency. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> like in a weird way, he's been prepping for this and studying for this for his adult life. Right. And he's had, you know, mentors and guides and right. the exact same people backing him up the whole time. And he really begins with Roy Cohn. I wish everyone who reported on Trump understood Roy Cohn, uh, understood who he was in American history. Would you, can you give a brief description for people who might yeah, not know? Yeah, he was, I mean, he came to prominence as Joe McCarthy's lawyer. Um, you know, he was responsible for the execution of the Rosenbergs. He went around calling everybody a communist. Um, Roy Cohn himself was gay, but closeted and was extremely homophobic. He was Jewish, but he was extremely anti-Semitic. After McCarthy, uh, he was an advisor to Richard Nixon, and he had a strategy of dealing with, um, you know, just the public in general, but also the press, which is just attack, 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 lie, 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 show no shame. Uh, he bragged about not ever paying taxes. He bragged about the fact that he ripped off all of his clients. I mean, he was basically a smarter version of Trump with, you know, a keen legal mind. And he used to, you know, much like all these other, you know, he 
case, the, the gay homophobe and the Jewish anti-Semite, he was like the lawyer who broke the law over and over. And, you know, he said he wanted to die owing the government tons of money. I mean, that was his dream and he fulfilled it. Um, he died of AIDS in 1986. But, you know, Donald Trump, like imagine you're Trump, you're like in your late 20s, you are super rich already, you have every advantage in life, you could probably be friends with whoever you want. You pick Roy Cohn as your best friend. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, he's like this, you know, demonic sort of figure in American politics, like intimidating and people know him, describe him as like reptilian. Like he, he was just really a terrible person. Sort of like Roger Stone. You know? Yeah, well, he, he mentored Roger Stone. Manafort and Stone were were introduced to Trump by Roy Cohn. He, and, and Atwater, Lee Atwater was also involved in this. They were all kind of a unit. And Cohn and Trump like talked to each other on the phone like 15 times a day. Um, you know, he was Trump's lawyer, but they were also extremely close friends. And I don't think Trump has ever had a close friend. And then Trump, once he found out that Cohn had AIDS, abandoned him. Uh, you know, uh, he charged uh, Cohn's boyfriend, who's also dying of AIDS, money for staying in a Trump property. I mean, you know, he treated him terribly. But that relationship is is really significant for him. Very weird. Um, after Cohn died, Trump became really unhinged. All of his business and financial affairs began collapsing. Collapsing. I wonder how much Cohn was controlling them because Cohn had great insight into working DC, working uh, New York, getting Trump out of all sorts of jams. And I don't think anyone, you know, he said, Trump said himself recently, where's my Roy Cohn? Which is basically like, where's the guy who solves all the problems in my life? Um, you know, and also Trump uh, had this relationship with the Soviet Union that started right after. And I always wonder about Roy Cohn and the USSR, because again, like, was he really anti-communist, really anti-Soviet? Or was he somebody who thought, well, this international crisis seems useful and kind of fun to, you know, make money and screw around. And maybe I'll work both sides. Like, I can absolutely see that mm -hmm. happening. I could see him being somebody who is maybe a liaison. And I'll, I'll stress that I'm just, this is just something I've thought about. Um, I really wish people could kind of follow up on this. It's notable that there's no definitive biography of Roy Cohn, and the available biographies are out of print. And it's because Roy Cohn's people will sue everybody who comes around and talks about him. That's the other thing that he showed Trump how to do. The NDA, the like the lawyer as the fixer, the lawyer as the bully. Like Trump's lawyers are so much more important in his life than like a normal person uh, and their lawyers. And so he helped groom him, and then Stone um, and others took over from there on in. And they were who Trump turned to for advice. You know, Michael Cohn was doing a lot of his dirty deeds. And he, that's been going on for a very long time. And so when people underestimate Trump, I think they underestimate Trump's ability to surround himself with like this goon squad of lawyers and accountants and PR people uh, who will do the work that he himself, you know, is just not intelligent enough to do. Yeah. And there's also something cowardly about him. They'll fire people for him. They'll do, he yes. sort of distances himself from all the really... Oh, he doesn't want any responsibility for it. Or, or he'll take responsibility if it's working out. I mean, yeah, it's like a little kid. It's like, you know, if he spills, he points to somebody else. If like someone else, you know, if there's a group project and your team gets an A, he says it's all him. I mean, that's, you know, looking forward to that with North Korea. Once he, he says he brought peace, you know, I'm sure that <laughs> that claim is coming. <laughs> so I want to uh, touch upon your upbringing just briefly again, because I'm interested, uh, you know, we talked a bit about how you got interested in this stuff. It sort of just seems like 
you were born to it or something. It's just, you just got interested. You read dystopian yeah, well, fiction. Yeah, well, then terrible things kept happening, and I kept wanting to know why. Okay. So, but know. politically, the family environment that you grew up in, like, were your parents progressive? Did you... Or they were, were you- just Democrats. Uh, my mom, you know, is a cynical kind of person who kind of thinks, you know, corruption is everywhere and wasn't particularly invested. My dad was, you know, just a regular New England Democrat. You know, my, his parents were in unions. Uh, they were big fans of FDR. You know, my parents were fans of JFK, they're baby boomers, you know, very sort of typical, um, you know, that as time went on, you know, they got grossed out by like the cable news cycle of, you know, constant partisan bickering, all this kind of stuff. But yeah, they're, they're a pretty liberal family. I have others in my family who are like Reagan Democrats, like they were Democrats until Reagan, then they became Republicans. Um, you know, those are the types that I was convincing to not vote for Trump. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you know, my parents and my sister are, are just uh, kind of run of the mill Democrats, not really super progressive, but you know, not uh, definitely not Republicans. And how do you uh, do? You, can you categorize, you know, categorize your own political persuasion? No, I think I'm hard to categorize. I mean, you know, I would say progressive. Um, you know, I I mean, I believe in reparations, you know, for for black Americans. And, you know, but then I'll have people calling me a centrist because I also think Russia interfered in the election. Like, I feel like there are all these labels that correspond with things that have nothing to do with political position. So I always prefer people, you know, to just ask me, like, what do you think about issue X? And then I answer. And then, of course, I also have, you know, I live in Missouri. So my expectations of what can be done in a state like Missouri are very different than if I lived in California or New York. Like, I want greater gun control. I want sensible reform of our gun laws. I know that Missouri is still going to be a gun happy state. I just want it to be safer where there are like people who really do want like guns taken away and don't understand that in Missouri, that just wouldn't work. I mean, it's just, it's basically impossible. I mean, that's why, you know, someone like Jason Kander, um, you know, who I voted for with enthusiasm understood that issue. And he was, you know, conveying to people in Missouri, like, I'm not coming in from a position of ignorance. Like he did an ad where blindfolded, he, you know, he put together, um, you know, the weapon that he had used when he was serving in the war and to sort of show like, I'm serious about guns and I'm serious about gun reform. And as a gun owner, I want this reform. And I thought that that was an effective kind of campaign. I was going to say that, you know, like in places like Missouri or in, if you're in Western PA or you're in, you know, certain parts of the Midwest or the South, like if you're running as a Democrat and, I mean, I think that you have to be real about where you're, right. where you are. And it doesn't mean, I mean, I think you should come down hard against the NRA. You know, that's just like a billion dollar, you know, multi-billion dollar lobbying group that, you know, uh, profits off of death. And, you know, and it's also risky, dirty with Russian rubles, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're absolutely horrible. And I feel like that's distinct from being like a gun owner or someone who goes hunting or does target practice or has a gun for self-protection like that, you know, it's two distinct things. But, you know, I, I do, I, I think because I live in the Midwest and I live in a blue city in a red state, like I'm, I don't compromise on moral principles, but I do try to keep a realistic set of expectations about what's going to be done. You know, I'll push for what I think is the most just policy, the most effective policy. I don't necessarily think it's going to happen. So in my mind, I always have like a plan B, like, okay, if this doesn't work, then what's the next best thing that we'll get? And I still think you fight for the best thing and you don't compromise. Or negotiate with yourself at the beginning. Yeah. Yo, no, you do not, you know, don't surrender in advance. I'm always telling people, it's like, just try, you know, like try to accomplish it and then, you know, figure out a backup plan if things don't work out. And, you know, I've, I've led a life where like a lot of things didn't work out just because of bad timing. You know, our whole generation, basically, like we've had the recession, you know, we had two wars, we had the internet restructuring everything in our economy. Like we've had to kind of, you know, take things as they come and adjust midlife, um, you know, to a world that was 
is very different than at least the world I thought we would have, like when I was a teenager when we were in college. Um, it certainly didn't involve Donald Trump being the president, <laughs> you know. And so you got to kind of roll with the punches, um, you know. And I do think I'm I'm good at that. Um, but yeah, like a lot of people have these very hard kind of like they're into their political identity and into talking about it all the time. But I'm like, well, what are you doing for people? Or what do you stand for? Like, what will you fight for? And there's just not a hell of a lot going on there. They actually are more likely to compromise, I think, in some ways than me. And I'm not saying that in some competitive sense. I wish just people would be in touch with like, what are your principles? What are your values? And like, live your life from that instead of saying like, I am and then a label that, you know, is just a contested kind of brand name, you know? Are there are there leaders or governments, um, either within the United States at the state or city level or internationally, that you admire? Man, not I always tend to see the worst in people, but you know, um, I mean, people in general, that's not true. But with politicians, I mean, I do look for the worst qualities because I want to be wary of them. I want to kind of keep an eye on them um, in case they come to power so I can make sure that they're not, you know, exploiting people or hurting people. But yeah, I mean, in terms of just governance in general, like I like the ones that have an expanded safety net. I think there are things that we've come to think of as privileges like healthcare that I think should be a fundamental right. You know, we certainly shouldn't be in a position where Flint, you know, and other cities are struggling for water. You know, there's a lot of like basically, you know, a European system is something I think, you know, we deserve in the United States. Like we deserve these basic rights of, you know, food, shelter, healthcare, uh, equal education, education that doesn't rely on, you know, your tax bracket and where you're born, equal opportunity in that sense. So, yeah, um, you know, I also know that that's very difficult to implement and that each state and each region has its own kind of unique culture, its own unique problems. But um, it feels yeah. like it feels like if that sort of stuff is ever going to happen, if there's ever going to be a big, bold, um, without apology push for those kinds of things from the progressive side, it's going to happen in uh, a backlash to what we're currently living through. Yeah, I think that that's possible. Um, I'm hoping that that happens. I, I hope just, you know, the Democrats are listening that, you know, I think some positions that they think are radical, you know, really aren't. Like most people want gun reform. Most people want health care. Uh, most people want, you know, billionaires and really wealthy people to have to give up more, you know, to the system, you know, in terms of taxes and funding things. Like they don't want everything coming out of their pocket because, you know, most people are struggling to get by and struggling to just survive. Um, and so I hope that they do understand that, you know, and I don't know. It, it, the thing is, it's like, I think people maybe see problems more clearly, but we have, you know, a more entrenched, uh, you know, kleptocratic autocratic system that makes it even more difficult to pursue those aims. And that's why you're seeing these big discrepancies in very blue states and cities um, between those cities and states and what the federal government and the GOP is trying to implement. And I think that that battle um, is going to dr grow stronger. Um, and, you know, what I hope is just that, I don't know, the the ideas that ease human suffering the most win out. You know, I don't want people seceding from the country. You know, I would like us to, as a country, move forward together, you know, cleanse ourselves of this horrible, um, you know, system that we have going. And, and it'll probably involve building something new. Because, you know, the thing is, 
before Trump, we were already, in my mind, at a breaking point. That's in part how Trump got in. It's because our institutions... That's what your book's about. That's what the book's about. You know, our institutions were rotting and social trust was decaying and partisanship was at an all-time high. And so that was already there. Um, you know, a lot of things I talk about in the book, like higher education, they're not going to sustain themselves and that has nothing to do with Trump. It just has to do with people don't have the money. Like, that could be, like, actually the real subtitle of the book is, like, everything costs too much. <laughs> I can't afford this. No one can afford this. Like, you get to a point, you know, like our generation, uh, you know, I'm kind of guessing your age, like you're probably in my age range, like, you know, it's like the first one with, with real Were you 28? <laughs> yes, yes, I am 28 for the uh, 10th time. Um, you know, the first one with like real heavy student debt. And now we've got kids and those kids are allegedly going to go to college. And who the hell is going to pay for that? Like, I just keep thinking about that. We also are the ones who went to college and that didn't necessarily do anything for us in terms of our financial stability, ability to make a living because all these industries happen to collapse within our lifetime. So then I think, do I want my kid to go to college? Like, they'll be punished if they don't. They won't be able to apply for a lot of jobs. So, yeah, I guess they want I want them to get that degree. But you know, I look at it as an impossible problem. And I think a lot of people do as well. And that's one of those things. That's when the bubble pops. It either pops or it just becomes a thing that only, you know, the Jared Kushners of the world can participate in is getting a college degree. Have any politicians reached out to you? I know Hillary like quoted one of your lines. Yeah, in her speeches. Yeah. And so that, uh, I mean, obviously she's read you. Right. People in her camp read you. But have other politicians reached out to you to like get your advice and counsel? Um, Yeah, some local Missouri politicians, you know, running for, uh, you know, small congressional races and stuff. Um, And sometimes I give free talks to, you know, local progressive groups in St. Louis that just sort of want advice. And I mean, this is like, you know, what I can do as a citizen to like give back to my community. Um, You know, so most of the time when I give a talk, I, you know, I try to charge money because otherwise I don't make any money and I can't pay my bills. But, you know, I make exceptions for my own community because I feel like this is beneficial. And so, yeah, I've had, you know, some politicians reach out, not so much at the national level. Um, not yet. It's a conflict of interest too, you know, like if I were to advise somebody, like I would announce that, like I wouldn't do it like under the table. And I think they know I'm a journalist, I'm an opinion journalist. And, you know, that that to me, if I was going to go into political consulting, I would just like go into it. I wouldn't be like dishing it out, you know, with, with Missouri, I just mostly try to sort of frame what's going on in Missouri um, in relevance to like, I mean, in reference to what's going on nationally, just kind of fill people in like, okay, this is what's happening with Trump, with the GOP, with Russia, like that kind of stuff. And I'll just take, do a Q&A with like a big group of progressive voters who, you know, are, are very engaged at a civic level. Why do you think Paul Ryan resigned? Um, I think he's caught up in the Russia's case. I think a lot of the GOP is just because of the money that was coming into campaigns. Um, I think some of them did know that it's tainted, you know, Russian donations, that Trump was tainted uh, and chose to keep that quiet. I think some possibly didn't know, but are just afraid of being implicated in the probe. I also think it's possible he was going to lose. Um, but I mostly just think he wanted out because he didn't want to deal with any of this anymore. And, to, you know, he's just, to me, just such an incredible coward and such an incredibly cruel person. And I couldn't believe when people were referring to him as a tragic figure, because to me, a tragic figure is, you know, a person who tries to do right and has something happen to them, whether like a fatal flaw inside or an outside circumstance. To me, he was just always cruel. And he was that on purpose and he knew it and he exalted in it. So, you know, I'm glad he's gone. But, uh, you know, I wish that he faced some kind of recriminations for what he did. I think it's very interesting that he was allegedly part of a conversation uh, 
um, between multiple Republicans admitting that they knew that on Trump tape. was being, yeah, on tape, that um, Trump was being bankrolled by the Kremlin. Uh, it makes me wonder, you know, what was his level of involvement? You know, he's he's high up there. He certainly would have been in the know. Um, but, and I don't know if he can escape culpability if he is. Okay, so, and he's... You know, after Pence, he's next in line for succession. He clearly had uh, ambitions for higher office. Right. It just seems fishy to me. A lot of it, it frightens me because these are very ambitious people. And to me, it, it sort of signifies that they don't think this is something worth achieving, that maybe the presidency doesn't mean anything anymore, because maybe the presidency means being beholden to a foreign interest and not actually being able to make the decisions yourself, which is what they would want to do. Like there's uh, perhaps there's less power in the presidency. And that concept of it scares me a bit because because they're aware of the the leverage. Yeah. And it makes me think, well, that's then they're looking at everything as a foregone conclusion. That's that Republicans will win and that they will be controlled by outside parties. And some of this is Russia. But, you know, Trump, has weakened us so much, um, you know, in terms of our sovereignty, in terms of our national security, that I would assume multiple countries have leverage on us. Like Jared is very likely. I mean, well, now they finally said he's selling state secrets to, to Saudi Arabia and to, you know into different countries. Um, I think everybody's got a little piece of the American pie recently, and that's going to last uh, for decades. You know, even if Trump is gone, different. It's like everything's out there. You know, that information is valuable. Um, and so, you know, we're in a lot of trouble in that respect. And I wonder if that's why there's this mass wave of retirements. That right there is like the perfect encapsulation of the Sarah Kenzier experience for me on Twitter. Like, I feel like you're the person on Twitter who tells me what I need to hear rather than tells me what I want to hear. (laughs) But you're also capable of like scaring the shit out of me in a way that I really appreciate where I'm like, wow, like I need to like that. I'm glad it's a positive kind of terror that you're experiencing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I mean, it's like we need to be clear eyed about this stuff. Right. Well, that's how I feel. I mean, if we don't identify the problem, we're not going to be able to solve it. Like, I really don't like it when people refer to me as fatalistic because there's not one time, I think, in my life that I've ever gone down without a fight or that I've ever told people, don't stand up for yourself, don't stand up for others. Like, literally, all I'm telling people all the time is, you have to fight this, but you need to be informed. If you just stick your head in the sand and say, oh, you know, Mueller is going to save us or, oh, it'll end eventually or this can't last. It's like, no, you need to be on the ball. And I'm not saying like everyone needs to be chained to the news all the time. Like, you know, people have got other stuff going on and it's also like incredibly depressing and I don't expect that from people. But if you are going to put yourself out there as a journalist or as somebody, you know, an active participant in politics or civic life, you should go in and be as informed as you can. And you should look at the probable negative consequences of people's actions so that you can cut them off before they get out of control. Like, that's why I wish people had been on top of Trump's corruption, for example, early. So you could just, you know, cut it off before it spirals, because then you got a situation that's nuts. And, uh, you know, it's it's depressing to me that people just seem to think problems solve themselves, because, you know, in my experience, they definitely don't. Well, yeah, and I have friends. I mean, I have one friend in particular with whom I've had kind of like a running dialogue throughout my adult life about politics. And he seems to have reacted to, well, I think, I think he's maybe gotten less interested in politics, uh, over time. And I remain like obsessed with it. Right. But he's got this kind of like laissez fair attitude. Like it's going to fix itself. I'm looking at the long view of history. This is a bump in the road. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is like the American Nazi moment. Yeah. Like, I this feel is that where, this is where like my future grandchildren or future, you know, great grandchildren are going to ask like, well, what did, what did you do? Right. And, yeah, uh, I, I think so too. And it's also, 
If you have the ability to check out of the situation, odds are you're not the target or you're not close to people who are the targets. I mean, for me, you know, it is personal because most of my friends aren't white, you know, or, or they're immigrants, you know, they're, they're in some sort of vulnerable position where they are a particular target of this administration. And so, you know, I, I hear firsthand, you know, this, this terror that people feel um, living under it. And I think, you know, I also live in an impoverished city. I live in a place that, you know, terrible things happen. Like my governor is like a mini Trump. You know, he's been indicted on multiple felonies. He's a sexual assaulter and he's still there. You know, there haven't been consequences yet. They're trying to impeach him. He won't go. And so when people are like, oh, of course, if Trump gets impeached, he'll leave. I'm like, no, not necessarily. You know, and they're like, well, that's impossible. I'm like, it's happening in Missouri. And same with all sorts of other atrocities that happened in Missouri. Like our minimum wage was lowered by our legislature. We got a warning from the NAACP that it's too dangerous for black people to drive through the state. Um, all of our our personal information, our voting information was given by our legislature to the White House, even though, you know, Mississippi and Kentucky were like, hell no, you know, we're not violating our citizens' privacy. Missouri's like, here you go. I mean, so, you know, the worst has already happened in Missouri. It happens all the time. And so I kind of look at that as a template of how this might play out on the federal level. And, and you know, I, I do see the same kind of moves being made. Well, I... Uh... I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. And, you know, I'm grateful um, to have your perspective coming from a place like Missouri. I think it's really valuable. Um, it's, you know, obviously, it's, there's some weird ironies, you know, like your book uh, is doing well, you're doing well, <laughs> precisely because things in America are sort of sideways. Oh, yeah. No, I'm looking forward to the time where I'm like irrelevant. <laughs> Nothing I study has any value to anybody. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like an, an, expert on author, an expert on authoritarian states sort of wants to be like out of business. Like when I'm in demand, it's bad. Yeah, it's right. bad for the world. It's bad for America. And yeah, I mean, I, I would like to be in a place just where things are not so, you know, there's always going to be problems. So, you know, yeah. it's not like all corruption and injustice is just going to magically go away. But, you know, I feel like we're, we are at a crisis moment. You know, every day I wake up with like a sense of urgency urgency. Because as I said, you know, this gets exponentially worse all the time. I mean, not to like freak out everybody who's listening, but that's just a fact. You know, each day that goes by, we lose a little bit of our rights. We lose a little bit of our freedom. And that is why I wish that Mueller would hurry up. Like, you know, I kind of get why he's going as slow as he's going. I don't think it's out of malice or anything like that. But I do think he maybe has too much faith in the rule of law um, as a kind of bulwark at this point, um, because they're just torching it and, you know, setting the country on fire. They don't care. I mean, they, they don't care about citizens in terms of like, oh, no, they might not vote for us. They're just like, we'll rig the election. They don't care about, you know, what if there's a war? They're like, yeah, well, then just Americans will die and we don't care because we don't care about, you know, there's no accountability coming from the public in their mind. And that's that's not what you want. I mean, that's a frightening situation. And the more that gets entrenched, uh, the, the more dire the circumstances get. Yeah, like the only like, like one compelling line of thought that I thought, or like semi convincing line of thinking around why Mueller is taking his time is that he doesn't want to burn sources and that he wants yeah. to get people to flip in order to build his case rather than like reveal intel that could potentially compromise. I'm his sure that that's part of it, but I kind of look at how many people are already implicated in this and how so many of them have confessed to crimes. You know, Trump has confessed to obstruction of justice a few times. Kushner, my God. I mean, he should have been out for just, you know, lying on the security clearance forms alone. Like they have reason. They have absolutely reasonable cause to just at the very least remove him from office. And they pretended briefly that they'd taken his security clearance away 
but because they don't abide by the protocol, it's meaningless. Like he can get any information he wants from whoever he wants because he's the president's son-in-law. And then he does whatever he wants with that information and nobody comes after him. That unnerves me. And I guess the thing we haven't discussed in this, there's the other reason that I think all this might be happening. Everybody thinks it's, you know, the compromise of like the P-tape or whatever. You know, we have had our infrastructure hacked by Russia. And, you know, I've been yammering about this on Twitter for years. Um, The State Department, the DOD, Yahoo, uh, a lot of companies, our power grid, our nuclear plants, most recently our gas lines. And this information about the hacks has been kind of trickling out, uh, you know, for a little over a year, a little over two years. I think that's the leverage um, because I look at what Russia has done in places like Ukraine, you know, where they were like, we can send you into a blackout. And they did. And, you know, that and like the sort of the big ships that are kind of hanging around the coast, you know, threatening to cut our cable lines. They're doing this in Europe as well. That to me is a much more effective leverage because that's not just leverage over Trump. That's leverage over the entire government. And when I see a very terrified looking Nancy Pelosi or, you know, um, other representatives who are kind of stammering and look stunned. My thought is less that they're shocked at Trump's corruption because it's like Trump, like they know, they know how bad it is, that there's something worse, something that could potentially lead to a humanitarian crisis and that that would be effective leverage over a Democrat, be effective leverage over anybody. Um, And, you know, I wrote about this a long time ago and when I see it kind of reprinted as if it's new, um, you know, which it was recently in the New York Times sort of presented to the American people as if this was a thing that just happened. Whereas, you know, John McCain brought it up at a hearing uh, about a year ago. It's it's out there from officials for a long time. Then I think, oh, they must have made a threat. There must be some reason that they're putting this out there. And so that might be in part why Mueller is at the pace he is or hasn't made aggressive moves against certain individuals yet, because what he's done is target the surrounding circle of the administration, not people in it with the exception of Flynn, you know, well, Flynn had to, you know, was out by the time Mueller um, indicted him. But generally speaking, you know, Kushner hasn't been indicted, you know, other people who are just sort of obvious targets of this probe and Trump um, have not <laughs> been indicted. And that that makes me wonder, is there an external threat um, that's holding him back or holding others back from making a move? Are there politicians, uh, you know, among the Democrats or on the progressive side of the aisle that you would like to see run? Like, who are you a fan of politically? Are there anyone, is anyone out there in Inspiring you? It's so hard for me to, to like be a fan of a politician. <laughs> I mean, it's like that, you know, I look at most of them. I mean, I see a lot of them that are just flat out bad on the Republican side. But, you know, for the Democrats, most of them are a mix of good and bad. I vote by policy. I want to see their platform. I want to see how they respond to Trump. I want to see how they respond to unexpected circumstances that we're likely to face. I'm not going to make any kind of decision about that until 2019. Like I do, you know, if you ask me my opinion of a particular individual, I could, you know, probably tell you something. You think you don't Uh, like Bernie? I like Bernie's economic plan. I don't think of it as Bernie's plan, though. Like that's something that I don't like because, you know, I was very involved in covering um, minimum wage uh, strikes, you know, especially the fast food strikes. All of that was, you know, really out there and, and going places before Bernie kind of made it, quote, his issue. And I feel like you don't want to attach a person um, to a policy, especially if it's a really good progressive policy, like a $15 minimum wage, which is something I support, or, or universal health care, you know, another thing. So I like that. I feel like he his rhetoric on race uh, has often been terrible. It's been very offensive, um, sometimes about women. Uh, he tends to, you know, dismiss things as identity politics or establishment concerns, which are really very important civil rights issues. And I don't think he seems concerned about that. And I think especially with all the damage Trump has done, uh, we need somebody who is who's deeply committed uh, to civil 
civil rights and to, you know, we've gone backwards on a lot of things like, you know, the partial repeal of the VRA or something like I want somebody who understands that. And that, you know, I, I like Jason Kander. I feel like he does um, get those issues. And, you know, I also look at people's voting records. I tend to go for the ones who voted to not confirm everybody. <laughs> so I like in that sense. You know sense, what? That's uh, a really good litmus. Kirsten, um, I don't know, is it Gillibrand or Gillibrand? Gillibrand, I, I yeah. I read everything. This is instead of watching TV, you can tell. Yeah, Gillibrand, she has the best record in terms of, you know, not confirming people who should have never gotten into office. I think um, she's going to run. Yeah. And, you know, she's I think a lot of people are going to run. But I'm very cautious at this point because first I want to see what happens with the midterms. I want to see if they're free and fair. I don't necessarily think they will be. And I, you know, want to see, I, I think we're in for worse trouble, um, at least for this year and probably for next year. And I want to see how senators respond to whatever crises um, Trump comes. But, you know, what I look for in a person is, you know, are they genuinely serving the public? Are they aware of, you know, what people's, you know, pain and problems are? Are they willing to address systemic issues um, like racism, like economic inequality? And are they willing to to talk about it in a frank way um, to the public? And for a lot of these senators and representatives, it's a balancing act. You know, my own senator uh claire mccaskill has to kind of she's got to try to win and then so she you know she can't be as progressive in some sense as others but i do wish that she'd do some things i mean one is to address racism in missouri in a more forthright way and listen to black constituents more spend more time in st louis spend more time uh in kansas city you know because i think that you know when the naacp is saying you know (laughs) considering a violator rightfully so uh, you've got a serious problem. And I know that there's a lot of disillusioned um, Missourians, especially, you know, black folks in Missouri who feel like their representatives just don't care about them. And I think that it's her obligation not to win the election, but just as a senator who's supposed to serve the public to make sure she's a senator for everybody. So, you know, I hope that she does do that just in its own right. Yeah. Politics can get so frustrating sometimes where yeah. you're like, just have the courage of your convictions and like, at the same time, I can be maybe too idealistic and not understand like the the hard realities of winning. And you'd rather have her win than her opponent. Oh well, yeah, because that, that will affect my life. I mean, that's the thing. Is like you know we face the consequences of this, and then that is something I think people really did learn from 2016. I think that's why voter turnout has been high since then because I think people thought, well, you know, we've had Republicans, we've had Democrats. My life sucked either way. Things didn't change that much for me. And they thought, well, it can't really get worse. It's like, oh, yes, it can. It can get so much worse. And you got to try to do what you can to prevent that from happening. And you may well, you know, you will very likely end up with an imperfect solution. You may just be uh, voting for the lesser of two evils, but do it. Get the lesser one because, <laughs> you know, it's really hurting people. Like, the, the folks who treat this as some sort of abstract intellectual exercise while people are getting deported, while people are being discriminated against and losing their rights, it drives me absolutely crazy. Like, I think, you know, what you should do is emphasize the most vulnerable, the most marginalized people and make sure that their rights are protected and then work from there. Because if things are going all right for them, odds are they're probably going to go better for you, you know? And so just start from a moral place where you're looking out for the people who need help the most. I've been, for listeners who... Are- obviously can't see us. I've been like reacting physically to what Sarah said. I'm like, <laughs> I'm convulsing while she's talking. I mean, I'm in agreement. Yes. Um, well, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I'm uh, a huge fan of the book. I think it's really important work. I thank you for engaging with all this tough stuff and for uh, articulating it for the rest of us. And uh, I guess my last question is like, you got to be writing a book about 
what we're living through now. Are you going to write no, a tr- I mean, everyone wants me to write another book. My agent's always bugging me for a book proposal. Part of me really wants to, you know, I know like you strike while the iron's hot or whatever, but honestly, like, like I said, I feel like we're in this urgent time. And then I think, well, what's most useful for me to do? And I feel like it's like when the news cycle moves this fast, inform people on what's happening now, like try to use the platform I have to, you know, inform people in the goal of making an actual change. And maybe at some point, you know, maybe I'll do another collection of essays like next time around if a publisher is interested in this because this, you know, this thing's selling pretty well and it's like three years old. So, um, but you know, eventually when there's time, I would like to write, you know, another book. I maybe would like to write something looking back on this era, but you know, I wake up every day feeling like I'm going to war, like it's information war. And I'm not saying like as a propagandist, I'm saying as somebody who, you know, is an honest broker in the era of alternative facts. And, you know, I want to cut through that. I want to try to make sure that people understand, you know, what's going on in this country and use what expertise I have to be helpful. Because, uh, you know, what's the point of like, having a big book deal or doing some fancy shit if like the whole world is burning? Like, you know, I want a good world for my daughter. So it's like, I can't live in the close future, I can look at the broad future, and I can look at the present. And, you know, that's really all I can inhabit mentally and thinking about kind of, typical career stuff. I don't know. It just doesn't feel important to me right now. Well, I'm grateful to you. Congratulations on this book. Uh, enjoy your tour. Oh, thank you. You know, but get some sleep. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. an idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, Take good care of yourself. Like, stay hydrated. I know it's a lot of talking and it's oh, a lot yeah. of running around, but uh, it's well-deserved. And it's, I, I, again, it's an important book. I think a lot of people need to hear the message that you're sending. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Okay, guys, that is Sarah Kenzier. Her book is called The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. It's available now from Flatiron Books. You can track Sarah down online at sarahkenzier.com. Her Twitter handle is at Sarah Kenzier. If you're not following her, I recommend it. It's a great resource. The View from Flyover Country, out there now. Go get your copy. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music that you're hearing now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget this show has its own app. It's free. If you want the app, go get the app. It's available wherever you get your apps. If you would like to support the program, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So, I, you know, I don't usually get nervous to uh, do this show when I have people come over to talk to me. I was nervous to meet Sarah. I feel like I've read, I've probably read more of her and a small handful of other people who uh, write about politics and related concerns. You know, th- those are the people I probably have read the most over the last two years. So, it's a little bit like Elvis coming over or something an avatar come to life I tried to explain that to her but I don't know if she I don't know if that made sense anyway uh, it's just uh, it's good I feel like and I said this last week when I had Steve Allman done it's good to get these voices on this show and to hear from people who are doing the hard work to make sense of all this it's not always fun to think about you know it's not pleasant necessarily to confront this stuff but it's important and uh, I hope you guys got something out of it. Okay. I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>